can be seated. And the scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew 25. In uh, Matthew 25, Christ uh, begins the uh, chapter, or the chapter begins. Christ doesn't begin the chapter. The chapter begins with his uh, parable of virgin, ten virgins, and some were ready and some were not. It ends with the judgment uh, in verse 31, beginning at verse 31. And in the middle is the parable of the talents. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. Let us hear the Word of God. For And then he's talking about the kingdom of God. So you look at church, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins. Okay? And now he's going to give another illustration. Verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came, and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up, and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But the master, his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone, to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have even what he does have, shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Jesus, as you spoke these words, 
send your spirit to help us understand them better and apply them to our hearts and lives for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. What I want to do is you have an outline there. I want to explain this parable to us. And then I want to uh, give some uh, application to us and to make it very practical for us in our lives. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that Christ establishes. It is likened to a wealthy man who owned slaves. And before going on a journey, he gives large amounts of money to these slaves or these servants. They are to wisely use this money while he is gone. And when he returns, they will return to him whatever they have remaining, plus anything they may have been able to make of what he gave them. A talent here is money. It isn't an ability to sing or play baseball. It's a form of money for that day. The gentleman doesn't give equal amounts of money to the different ones. He believes each servant can reasonably handle a certain amount. And so he gives to one uh, an amount of five and to another amount of two and to another an amount of one. Each man according to his ability. The first two servants immediately put their money to work. They don't waste any time. And they double what they get with their money that he gave them. The third servant buries his money in a safe place. After a long time, the gentleman returns. And the first two servants are excited to show him what they have accomplished. And he is pleased with them and rewards them for their work. And you notice he said the same thing to the two-talent person as he did the five-talent. He was very, he was encouraged that they had taken what he had given to them to work with. But the third fellow cannot give a good report. He comes to the gentleman. He explains that based on what he knew about him being unreasonable and unjust, he had been very careful to take precautions to hide his money so that when he returned, he could have it all, and it would be returned to him. There would be no risk involved, and and he he knew that this is what he ought to do with the fellow. The gentleman explains to the slave that since his understanding of him was such that uh, he should have actually done more than what he did. He should have at least earned interest on the money. Thoroughly disgusted with the servant, he takes the original talent he gave him. He gives it to the slave that had the most money to manage. And he takes the unreasonable servant and has him punished. And he describes this servant as wicked, lazy, and worthless. Now you might say, well, what about the image of God in man? Okay, the image of God in man, the guy still has that. But what we do have is that the guy was under God's judgment for how he had responded.
The first two he describes as good and faithful, and he brings them into a time of happiness and rejoicing, and he puts them in charge of other responsibilities. Now what shall we learn here? This is an important parable. It's one of those uh, parables that we ought to return to in our lives from time to time. Uh, we, we learn the message of the parable, but we also need to come back to it and ask ourselves maybe, how are we doing? Or am I uh, continuing to observe what's here? I like this parable because it helps to define life and purpose and God's will for our lives. It deals with work and time and success, and it helps us to regulate our understanding of ourselves as to what we can achieve and what we ought to be doing. Jesus uses here and in Luke the instrument of money and investment, and I want to do the same, and thus the title, Investing Kingdom Currency. Now somebody might say, well, why are you using money? Well, because Jesus used money. Okay, so I got currency there, and that's what he's doing. He's telling a story, he's telling a parable to teach these people a lesson that has to do with money and their uh, and uh, about their life, and the money has is symbolic of something else. So the second point there is that Jesus Christ, Master and King, issues kingdom currency and stock to all citizens of his kingdom. Kingdom currency and stock to all citizens of his kingdom. And the first uh, point is that Jesus Christ is master and king. He is sovereign by right and in rule. He is sovereign by right and by and in his rule. The parable is about Christ. And the owner of the slave stands for Jesus Christ, who is master and king over his kingdom. Christ is the absolute owner, ruler, and sustainer of the world and the universe. But he also has those who profess to be his people. He has those who profess to be in his kingdom, in his church, who profess to be his servants. And that is all those who are recognized outwardly as Christians. They have a calling to serve Him and are uniquely identified with Him as opposed to other people in the world. So what we have here is, and what we're going to see is, we've got a couple of guys who are, who are you know, Jesus is happy with them. We think, okay, these are Christians He's happy with. And we've got this third guy who, who apparently professed to be a part of the kingdom or professed to be a Christian or professed to be a part of the church but this is a guy who is, is going to be judged by Christ and going to be rejected by him. So the second thing that we look at is Christians are citizens of his kingdom. As subjects, as servants, they are each one receive something from him, just like the servants here. Some receive more, some receive less, everyone receives something. No one can say that he hasn't received anything from Christ that he is supposed to use or put to work. Everyone has received something. Some Christians try to act real humble as though they haven't received anything to be used. That They, they, they speak very humbly 
I can't do anything. I haven't. I don't have anything that I've been given, and I just. I'm just sort of. Uh, that's a bunch of garbage. It goes against what Jesus teaches. Jesus says, "No, you can't. You can't be humble. You're being disobedient when you have that attitude." Christ says he gives so he gives things to all of his servants. We're going to see what he gives in just a minute. We're going to see what this currency and stock is. He gives according to what he thinks his servants can handle. To some he gives much because they can handle more. To others he gives less because they can't handle or manage as much as others do. And what is it that he gives his servants? Well, he gives the C is he gives his servants kingdom currency or stock. Now what is the stock? What is the currency? What is this kingdom currency and stock that he gives us to trade with? Usually with this parable people talk about how Christ gives us gifts and abilities and possessions to use them for him. And this is fine. It's okay to take, say he gives us abilities and uh gifts and possessions to use for him. But I want us to think of this more exhaustively. I want us to let our minds run to think of this including more than just those things. The kingdom currency and stock may be money or possessions, but what I'm calling kingdom currency and stock here is everything that the Christian has and all that we are. Christ owns all and gives all. You and I have nothing that is ours, so we need to think in those terms. We need to think in terms that God gives everything that we have. I know that you may pay the mortgage and your name may be on the deed, but Christ owns all things, okay? And Christ, I know we work hard and all that stuff, but only by the grace of God do we make what we make and, and everything is His. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Bible says. Well, somebody on earth claims those cattle as their own. Okay, they're milking cows. They're making burgers, all right? But the point is, the point is that Christ all things. Everything we are, everything we have is the currency and stock that He has given us to trade with, to use, to invest, to grow. To some more, to some less. Think about it. He gives us, think about some of the things that God gives us. He gives us spiritual blessings. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us worship. Last Lord's Day we had the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I spoke about how we need to improve our baptism. I'm talking to adults. We're baptizing the baby. Look how cute. But I'm talking to adults. We need to all improve our baptism. Look at what he gives us. He adopts us into his family. He calls his sons and daughters his children. He gives us worship. He gives us the sacraments. He gives us today. He gives us the Lord's day. Today we were driving down here. I said, "Okay, Lord, help us to help us to take a break or something." I forgot what I said. And that, so that work is not on our mind today. And Brenda, after I prayed, Brenda said, "That sure sounds good." Anyway. So that we have a day. We have a day to trade with. We have scripture. We have his church. We have fellow Christians. We have a heritage. 
What else does He give us? Think about who you are. Think about other people in this room. He gives us intellect, imagination, a conscience. He gives us interest. He gives us a personality. He gives us ability. He gives us desires. Sometimes the desires may be for good things. Maybe not. Maybe questionable. We have to investigate. He gives us zeal. He gives us experiences. Past experiences. That can profit other people. He gives us property. Possessions. He gives us family. He gives us a history. He gives us time. How are we trading with time? He gives us talent. He gives us a knack for certain things. He gives us friendship, power, influence, positions. Our currency and stock to trade with and to use and to multiply and put to good use in everything we have and everything that we are. It isn't just learning or it isn't just money and being able to do a few things well. It's our total person that and all that make up who we are. So we take stock and we look at who we are and what we have and immediately we are in sin if we conclude that we haven't anything. That somehow Jesus has shortchanged us because he hasn't. That's the devil keeping us from seriously trading and investing with what we have. And we're called to do in the kingdom of God. We're called to, to use the currency and the stock that he's given us. These things that I just mentioned. Now, that's the fourth point. Christians are to use the currency and stock that he gives them. They are to trade with it. We use this, we use it in our lifetime. We're to be using it now, yesterday, today. We look at the whole of who we are and what we have and at the individual parts of the whole and we see it to be used now. The Lord has given you certain interests. He's given you a Bible. He's given you worship, property. How do you use these properly for Him? Time. That's the other thing. We don't just use them, but we, we use them in such a way that they're productive, they're positive, they're good for us, they're good for others. Take learning and the use of the mind. We're not to learn and to grow so that we can be so wonderful and we can see ourselves as so wonderful or so that we can put other people down. But how can we minister to others? Or how can we do good? How can we benefit others? So we are to trade and to grow what we have and do this for the glory of God and to benefit others. We see others be Christians and grow in grace. We see people have spiritual and material needs met. That we can do that. We see others, others helped in their calling as Christians and friends as citizens and parents and children. We take the part of widows and orphans and the oppressed and the persecuted. We're, we're concerned about justice. We seek to do justly and to love mercy, like Micah said. We grow in overcoming sin and help others in this as well. We teach and we give and we encourage and we rebuke and we correct. We do these things with one another, not as God, but humbly as fellow believers. We do our jobs to the glory of God, and we see our employment as a place where we serve Christ first 
and we do our work as unto the Lord. We have interests that we try to use profitably for others and to advance His kingdom however we have. Even our recreation. We look for new ways to invest who we are and what we have for the glory of God. And we realize there's always plenty more that we could be done that could be done and what we can do. We never run out of places to put the kingdom currency and stock that God has given us. This then is the first big thing to learn here. Christ our master has given us and made us all we have and are and that is the talent or the currency or the stock that we are to use so as to have it multiply all for His glory. We are to live for Him and serve Him with all that we have and all that we are to the glory of God. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy a lot of things along the way. We do. We enjoy all kinds of things. But we are to, be, we are to see ourselves as those who are seeking to take what God has given us and use it for His glory to honor Him, to benefit others. Now I want to conclude our thoughts on this passage by comparing the two, uh, the two kingdoms and servants, the good and the faithful to copy, and the two and the lazy and the wicked to reject. So um, you have those two faithful servants to copy, and the lazy and the wicked to to reject. And there's seven things I want to say about these servants, and I want us to see that we want to be in that first category. I'm going to use the the, the first two guys first in this uh, in this comparison. So the first one is wise versus wicked. We see the good servant as wise because he put his talent to work. He had his head on straight. He knew his calling was to be faithful. And he did what his master entrusted him to do. That's the first two guys. But more than that, they had an accurate understanding of their master. This is probably the second most important thing after the first point that we should have from this passage. That not only has God given us gifts and talents, but we should have a right view of our master. We must see God as he really is. And these first two guys didn't have a bad attitude toward the, the, their master. They didn't have a bad attitude toward the guy who had the money. They did not have a, they, they did not have a, 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 a negative spirit toward him at all. Christ calls the last servant wicked, and his wickedness chiefly consisted in his having a corrupt and wrong understanding of the master. And, and also, of course, his, uh, the, the subsequent thing he did by hiding his talent. The things the wicked servant thought about his master weren't true. The master wasn't unjust. He wasn't unreasonable. He wasn't full of theft. But he was quite understanding and generous and eager to reward and bless with joy. The last servant is wicked because he isn't given much. Not even because he didn't make much, but because he had such wrong views of the master. Hendrickson remarks about this second fellow. In order to invent an excuse for his own dereliction of duty, 
This fellow had the audacity to accuse his master of being hard. That is unrelenting, harsh, merciless, stern, one who exacts more than he has a right to exact. This man was wicked because he deliberately misrepresented both his master and himself. He falsely accused his master of being cruel. He also lied, namely, when his master said, Look, here you have what is yours, for he actually owed his employer not only that one talent, but also whatever he would have earned had he been faithful. But instead of admitting his guilt, he acts as if the master should have given him credit for having been so cautious and for having returned the entire talent intact. This shows that he was indeed utterly wicked and selfish. He had a perverted and wrong view of the master. His response is excuse-making, and it reveals his heart. Who is this? This is a picture of those in the church or who profess to be Christians who do nothing and live lives full of themselves, who are full of excuses as to why. God hasn't given them anything to use for Him. God hasn't made their li- God instead has made their lives too busy. Their, their lives are too busy to serve Christ. God hasn't blessed them like He has blessed others. God has put hardship and trouble on them so that they can do nothing. God is hard and demanding and unreasonable, and He can't be pleased. These are the wicked in the church, and their biggest problem isn't that they don't do enough for God, but they don't believe the truth about God. They fail to appreciate that He is forgiving and loving and gracious and giving and working all things for His glory and their good. It's very important that we have an accurate understanding. These people profess to be believers, but they're like the... You know, Jesus told the parable of the soils. And you have in that parable, you have the people who quickly believe and give up that Satan takes away the word, then the, the other soil is not rooted, and the other had everything in this life to smother out their serving Christ and being his people in his world. And then you had one, the fourth good soil, that bore fruit. The second thing we can say about these two is that the first two servants were accountable, and the second one, the second guy was accusatory. The good and faithful servants knew they would have to give an account later. And they were responsible for what their master gave them. And they needed to do the best with what they had. This is the way good Christians should live today. When I say good Christians, I don't mean that they're without sin or that they never fail. I'm just saying people who walk humbly with God and know that they're sinners and confess their sins and know that they're weak and have a relationship with Christ where they love Him and they're forgiven and they know all these things. I'm not saying, I'm saying those are the people who are the faithful and the good servants. But they know they will give an account as to how they've spent their time and their money. And everything that they have. But the wicked slave accuses God for his failure. It's God's fault he hasn't done better. He's like Adam in the garden blaming Eve. He doesn't take responsibility for his own life and actions. Everything is someone else's fault. Ultimately it ends up being God's fault. Because he doesn't... Because it doesn't come out of people's mouths that way. But that's what they're saying. You and I have to take responsibility for our lives. And yes, a lot of garbage happens in life. And yes, it comes from other people. But we need to be adults. We need to, we need to take responsibility for our lives. 
and address what it is that comes our way. We all could be a better Christian, a better husband, a better wife. We could accomplish more, but the people around us don't help us, we say. The elders and other Christians aren't helping. God hasn't given us a mind to learn or the right opportunity to serve. And even if we have only one talent, we still can't satisfy God because He expects so much. All this whining and complaining and blame shifting and excuse making can be reduced to blaming and accusing God. Instead, we take responsibility for our lives and we seek to be faithful and, and, and we work to honor God in our lives and we fail and we confess our sins and we move on. And it's not like He's surprised, okay? When you mess up, tomorrow it's not like God's going to say how did that happen he knows that he knows that that's part of his grace yes we confess our sins but he saved us and called us to himself as his people and he knows we're going to mess up when we're out here trying to live for him and serve him with all that we have and all that we are he knows we're going to mess up and he loves us and he's right there with us just like Peter denying him and what does he do he brings him right back in. He loves him. Well, think about the parable of the son, of the prodigal son. What was the father doing when he saw the son coming? When he saw the son repenting, what was the father doing? Was he like this? Yeah, I hope you learned your lesson. No, what was he doing? He was smiling. He was happy. He embraced that son. He loved him. And so the same way when you and I are trying to serve the Lord, when we fail and when we're not trying to serve, we fail confessing our sins. God welcomes us. He, this is his, who He is. This is His love. This is His grace. Three, C. The first guy is responsible and working. The second, the other, the last guy, the first two are responsible and working. The last guy is irresponsible and lazy. The faithful servant is not obligated to accomplish things he cannot or produce things that he cannot produce. The two-talent guy isn't required to produce five. He's just required to use what it is that he has. Again from Hendrickson, he says, Whatever we have, whether opportunities or ability to use them to the advantage belong to God. We possess. God owns. What we have is still His property. We are stewards. The Lord grants us opportunities for service in accordance with our ability to make use of them. Accordingly, since not all men have the same ability, therefore not all have the same or an equal number of opportunities. In the day of judgment, the number of opportunities or service or talents will not matter. The question is only, have we been faithful in their use? And that's what God says. Remember, Christ said, He doesn't say, well done, thou uh, perfect servant. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And part of faithfulness is when we fail, we confess our sins. But what about the wicked servant? Verse 26 says he's lazy. He's full of excuses. He isn't motivated out of love for Christ. He wants the easiest way, way out. He believes it's a waste of time to work hard for his master. He doesn't see the reward or the benefit. And so today, people speak of being shy or busy or without whatever they need to work and serve Christ and others. 
when in reality they don't love Christ and they're lazy. They do love, though. They do love. They love themselves. They love to see benefit in whatever will make them happy, whatever makes them comfortable, whatever satisfies them, whatever gives them pleasure, whatever gives them benefit. That's the, that's the mentality of a lazy person toward the Lord may be a very active person in other ways. Which brings us to D, number four, self-denying versus self-centered. The good and faithful servant put their master first before themselves. He had given them business to do, and it is their responsibility and priority to carry it out. You know, that's what Jesus did. What did he do? He put the Father's will before him. He put us. I mean, look at what Christ did to deny himself on our behalf. And now it's our turn to deny ourselves on behalf of him and others. The wicked, lazy slave was only thinking of himself. Not what to do best or benefit or honor or advance the master, but what's safest for me? How can I protect me? What's easiest for me? What's the least risk and work for me? How horrible we think it is if someone had answers or help to give others in need around them and then to ignore them. Or to be given skills and ability which could profit others but then ignore them because you're too interested in your own pleasure. Consider Christians that won't risk even introducing themselves to someone at a worship service. Consider those who keep their distance from those in need that they might help or befriend, who have a different personality. Maybe they don't even smell good. Maybe they're, they've got all kinds of other issues Consider those who do token duties in church for Christ and others but don't have enough hours in the day to pursue their dreams and hobbies and interests and live frustrated because they're not more happy in themselves. But it's not because Christ isn't served. Consider those who hide behind family or work duties and won't go beyond social comfort level to minister these people aren't with different personalities or from others, but those who express their sin, who live selfish lives like the wicked servant and justify everything to themselves. Number five, the first two guys were active. The second guy was passive. The good and faithful servants acted immediately. It's not as though, it's almost as though these fellows already had in mind what they could do to make some money for their pastor, for their pastor, <laughs> for their master. You want to make some money for your pastor? Well, I'm not your pastor, but we're going to get us a pastor, okay? And then you make some money, and then you put it in the offering, and we'll pay the pastor, all right? But anyway, they were not concerned for their master. But these guys, uh, th- these first two guys were. This third, the th- third guy was not. Christians know things about themselves that they can always put to immediate use. Someone in the church is going through something and you've gone through it. Or maybe you haven't, but you can still give encouragement. There are people in need everywhere. Good ministry to do. The job we go to every day, the Lord has, is, can be honored there in the quality of work we do. We have time and money. We have a phone. We have a computer and pen and paper, a house, a car, 
But the wicked passive slave, he won't work. He won't nurse an investment. He lives paralyzed, waiting for better circumstances, making excuses, a comfortable order and rules for life that allow him to be his own selfish self. And he has nothing to show of gain for what he has done. The other thing too is, I think uh, this this passage here, I've seen people do this too. When they become older, or they were active in the church when they were younger, they'll say something like, well, you know, I used to do this and I used to do that and I've done this and I've done that. And I don't really care about hearing all that garbage. We want to know what's going on now. What's going on now? Who are you loving now? Who are you ministering to now? No, it's not somebody else's turn. Right now is everyone's turn. God doesn't call us to passivity. All right, the next one. Taking wise risk versus being sinfully safe. Taking wise risk versus being sinfully safe. i got a great quote for you. This quote comes from Matthew Henry and it's attributed to Lord Bacon. And since it had money in the text, this is what he said. Money is like manure, good for nothing in the heap, but it must be spread. I thought that's pretty good. Anyway, I thought it was funny, but anyway. Uh, so what's he saying? You go back and read Calvin. Calvin takes this parable of talent and he preaches against people hoarding. He, he preaches against people hoarding and not... I mean, he wouldn't mean that it was wrong to have money for for safety and, and, and things like that. But the whole point is that we should be investing. We should be putting our money to work just like we would do that with what gifts and talents we have. We don't know what risks the good and faithful servants took, but we do know it was a whole lot more than simply putting money in the bank. It probably involved personal involvement, time and energy and sweat and tears. They probably made a bunch of mistakes. They probably learned some lessons. But their risk wasn't like buying lottery tickets. It was based on facts and knowledge they had. And so they took risk with their lives. They went beyond their comfort zone. They, 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 they put themselves in uncomfortable and new situations where they would have to grow, where they would have to be stretched beyond what they were used to. This is good. This is good for us. But the wicked slave would have none of this. He won't risk anything. It isn't as though you have to establish your own missionary society or start a halfway house But the Lord puts opportunities all around us and equips us for where we are. And we should never despise the day of small things. We don't know what God's pleased to do. We talked about some of that in Sunday school this morning. It's sad that people won't attempt ministry and showing love to others because it's beyond their comfort zone. They fear they won't succeed. They worry about how they'll look to others. Safety is their motto. And zero is what the Lord thinks of them. The last one. Rewarded versus rejected. Excitedly, the good and faithful servant, it seems, is happy for his master's return, ready to give him as he now 
is uh, how well he has done. He's excited to see his master. He's not dreading it like the third guy. The master rewards the good and faithful servants. They are entrusted with more. The master puts them in charge of much more, reminding us how the Lord tests and proves his people. And when we are faithful, he's often pleased to give us much more to oversee. This is only natural as the Lord teaches and matures his people. The servants are rewarded how they have been faithful in what has been given to them. The fellow with two is commended just as the fellow with five. Each enters into the joy of their master. They are given more to do in his service. And they share in the joy of their master. Here's a picture of, of heaven and rewards and blessing, which Christ goes on to speak about in the last part of this chapter also. The picture here is reward for faithfulness, joy in Christ and in his service. It's not working in order to earn your salvation. It's these people who have been saved because Jesus Christ has covered them with his righteousness and their faith is in him, not in their works. It's because they see Christ as their substitute on the cross for their sins and they are made his and then they live for him. But there is rejection for the unfaithful lazy servant. He shows that he was never the Lord's anyway. And what he has taken what what he has is taken from him, and he is assigned a place of suffering. Often it doesn't take the final judgment, but even in this life we see people lose what they once had, lose opportunities and privileges taken away through neglect, through preoccupation with themselves. How many husbands and wives have testified to this as their preoccupation with themselves are their work so that they sacrifice the relationship with their children. Matthew Henry says, Many a one goes securely to judgment, presuming upon the validity of a plea that will be overruled as vain and frivolous. Slothful professors that are afraid of doing too much for God, yet hope to come off as well as those that takes so much pain in religion. He doesn't mean pain is something bad, but they're striving to follow Christ. Those in the church that pick at living the Christian life like a child picks at his plate of food, there is no seriousness, no desire, no endeavor, no pains, no perseverance, but only pretending of what they are not. The foolish virgins in the beginning of this chapter are quite deceived, not ready, and so is this foolish servant. The way to judge whether we are ready or not is to look and see if we are living, recognizing that all we have and all we are is the Lord's and to be used for His glory and that we are, that's what we are to be about. And again, I emphasize that does not mean that we are earning anything in our acceptance with God because we are only accepted in Christ. But it does mean that we're following Christ in what he teaches like in John 15, that we are to abide in him. And, and as we abide, as we are the, abide in him, the branches abide in him, we bear fruit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel that we have heard and embraced. And we pray that you would help us to live that gospel in our lives from day to day. It's hard, Lord. We're a mess in many ways and the world is fallen and then we've got Satan to contend with and uh, there's just 
there's just a lot of opposition. And sometimes it gets really old and tiresome and tiring, and it's hard and 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 sometimes just downright scary. Uh, may keep us awake at night, all kinds of stuff. And Lord, we need so much your help. We need so much your help. And we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that that even in all of this, that it's for our good and it's for your glory, and that you bring good out of it. And Lord, we know this from experience. We know of times that we've really had to work hard and it wasn't pleasant. It was painful. And yet it, it ended up being a good result. And this is the promise you give us. Lord, take away our excuses and help us to seek to be faithful to you with all that we have and all that we are. And all the while, delight that you came to us and changed our hearts and made the righteousness of Christ our only hope of salvation and his death our only as our substitute for the sins for which we are to be paid, for which we deserve punishment. We pray in his name. Amen.